This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, helping the people of the world to live healthy lives. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. So now that kids' sports and all the extracurricular activities are back on and so many kids have re-entered the world of sports, I thought we should talk about some of the common injuries that do occur, what to do when your child has an injury, and how to know when to rush to the doctor or to the hospital. So today I'm joined by Dr. Tash. She is a pediatric ER doctor. Take two. Today, I am joined by Dr. Tash. She is a pediatric ER doctor. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me again, Claudia. I look forward to our discussion. It's always great to talk to you. And I do have to say that I am relieved as a parent that organized sports are back on. So my kids are thrilled to be participating again. But being involved in sports increases children's risk of being injured. So I thought we should start the show by discussing some of the common injuries that do happen and how to handle them. So the big one that I get to see a lot in my own office, in my own practice, are concussions. They are common and scary when they do happen. So let's start with that. Sure. Um, So, you know, this is not an uncommon thing that we either get a pediatrician, a a local family doctor, any healthcare practitioner that they see a kid who parents come to them with concern for, does my child have a concussion after falling and hitting their head? And so this is something that, you know, we see in the ER and we're expected to kind of just take a look, assess and make sure that the patient is safe, safe to go home. So let's talk about what what causes a concussion. So first, Concussions are what we call brain injury that affects the way you think and remember things for a short period of time. When you hear brain injury, that gets really scary for parents. And so parents come running in very, very afraid. And what we mean by that, there's a graded kind of idea of brain injury. You can have like a mild head injury, which concussion might not be involved. And then you can have head injuries with no obvious injury to the skull, face, whatnot, and still have what we call a concussion where it affects kind of just how your child is overall. And so with that being said, um, we talk about what's, you know, what's next? Like, what are the next steps? And so we talk about knowing first what causes concussions. And then with that, we make it kind of like, what do you prevent? So it's a prevention thing. So any blow to the head, face, or neck, or somewhere else on the body that causes a sudden movement of the head can cause a concussion. So examples like being hit in the head, with the back with a ball, so the back of the head with a ball, or being checked in football, hockey, all those kind of sports, or just even falling off a bike, a skateboard. So those are some examples that we know, but we also know we have prevention methods. What's the biggest one? Helmets. Um, the main thing I tell parents all the time is that a person does not need to be knocked out. So you don't need to look at your child and say, oh, my child didn't lose consciousness or pass out. They don't have a concussion. That is still possible if the child has not passed out. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point because that happens in my own practice. Often parents will often bring their kids because we're already seeing them for other sport injuries. And, you know, you hear about a child who fell on the ice, hit their head or got hit and, you know, jarred their neck. And uh, they're like, yeah, but, you know, my he or she didn't pass out. And And I always say it doesn't need to be a pass out situation to have a concussion. So there are different grades of a concussion, right? Absolutely. And that's something that, you know, the Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics, and there's a lot of concussion paperwork out there. 
And there are concussion specialists that help with rehabilitation of concussions. And they're very particular in the um, kind of the criteria for the different grades. For us in the ER, the majority of the ones we see are the ones that parents are so scared because their symptoms are bad or they're persistent. So perhaps the child had immediate symptoms and the parents got scared or they had symptoms resolved, but then the symptoms come back 24, 48, 72 hours later because they're not actually doing appropriate management at home. And so what would be appropriate management? That's a great question. So that's one that we always talk about. And so first of all, it's about knowing how long things can take. So knowing that your child can take a lot longer, signs and symptoms of concussions can often last even for seven to 10 days, even sometimes last weeks or months. So especially if your child has had a concussion before or some mental health issues, this might actually prolong your process of feeling better. So first and foremost is maintaining a healthy environment. So that's diet, sleep, being on a schedule, staying hydrated, reducing stresses, but also things like reducing, unfortunately, the activity that your child is doing. So if you're concerned for an immediate concussion in the moment, you need to remove your child from that sport and have them watched. You should not put them back in because that increases the chances of a second head injury and that would actually prolong symptoms or worsen symptoms immediately. So once your child is feeling better after resting, then there's, we have a graded approach. So slow start to increasing activities again. And that starts with light and low risk exercises. So walking, stretching, meditating, uh, yoga, um, trying not to put them back into the environment or an environment where that second concussion or head injury could potentially happen. And reminding our children as hard as it can be, especially with organized sports, is that your child should take time. They need to take their time returning to those activities. The other big one children do not like, and I say this to them every time they come in, this is not your parent telling you, you can blame the doctor, it gave me, that screen time should be limited. It does put a lot of stress on the brain, and that means things like cell phone time, computer time, TV time. So you don't have to completely isolate a child for any significant period of time, but your child should be allowed to interact you know, with others in limited amounts. And I think that's a really important point, and one of the things that parents as well as the young athletes struggle with is taking time away from the sport to let their body properly heal. So, you know, when is it a concern for parents? When do we become concerned about a concussion? Um, if the if the effects of the concussion are lasting over a certain time, like when should we be concerned about either the long-term repercussions uh, or the immediate? Yeah, that's a that's obviously a really, really good question because that leads to, you know, when do we visit the doctor? So for, for I like to kind of start with the baseline. A concussion can be anything from headaches, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, changes in sight. And that could be very early on, very quick and, you know, improves. But then there's the changes in behaviors. So, you know, decreased ability to concentrate uh, or loss of balance, sadness, anxiety, personality changes. You know, maybe they develop slower reaction times, difficulty remembering things, feeling dazed or confused. And these are not uncommon things that we hear. And so remembering that you can have that those symptoms immediately, they can improve, and then they can return. Or if those symptoms are longer than 24 to 72 hours, those are kind of my guidelines just to be evaluated by a physician. So that would be your family doctor. That could be your pediatrician. And that could be the ER. So if your child has been diagnosed with a concussion already, so like let's say you present to the emergency room first and we've diagnosed you with concussion or concussion-like symptoms, 
the reason they should return to a doctor immediately is symptoms get worse. So like if there's more confusion developing, a headache that gets worse and it's not like the previous headache. Vomiting, I usually say more than two to three times in an hour for multiple hours. Maybe having a hard time waking them up in the morning or in the afternoon, having trouble sleeping, having trouble walking, experiencing potentially a seizure out of nowhere, or their behavior. So even though there's a long list of symptoms for concussion, those are the highlighted ones where I say these are things that need to be reevaluated. And they, they should be reevaluated ongoing, so every couple of days, uh, just to make sure that the symptoms are improving. Because if you're not getting improvement, then there are next steps. Yeah, so what we find is that um, every physician is a little bit different in terms of, you know, reevaluation. So we know that if you have prolonged symptoms or your symptoms have disappeared and then returned, you're, at a, you're going to be an extensive, longer healing process. So we know that it can be seven to 10 days minimum, even up to weeks. And it's, it's two, a two-way responsibility. It's the responsibility of the family to be very strict with their child in terms of making sure they do the proper home care. And then it's the responsibility to have that relationship with your physician to know when to follow up. So some may just follow up you know, on a weekly basis, or if any of these symptoms are more severe, then you come in more often or they may send you to the ER. The big thing I want to remind families is I get a lot of families coming to the emergency room after prolonged symptoms or even immediately after a head injury asking me to do an x-ray, a CT, an MRI to diagnose concussion. And what I remind families is a concussion cannot be diagnosed on imaging. What we use that imaging for is to rule out severe brain bleed or a fracture. And most of the time, the mechanism of injury, the prolonged symptoms, the severity of symptoms are all what we use to determine whether imaging needs to be done. And it's called PCARN criteria, and it's accessible to all families online, and they can find it very easily, um, and it's reevaluated. And so imaging does not diagnose concussion. Concussion is based on clinical history and symptoms. That's a really good point. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And the other thing that I feel is a little bit controversial lately is, do you put your child to sleep after a a concussion or must you wake them up every two hours? Because as a child, that's what my mom did for me is wake me up every two hours. Now, and I know things have changed. So let's just tell parents what they should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah. I love, Claudia, that we, every time we talk, we talk about what our parents did with us. <laughs> right. Because it still sticks. Mm-hmm. There's so many within our age range that they think that those are the things that happen and we still do. And we forget, you know, medicine does evolve. We learn more. And there have been so many um, talks around concussion. And there's been lots of um, groups get together, specialists getting together, talking about the management And one of the big, big ones that we need to remind families is we need to remind them that waking them up from sleep and breaking their sleep while they're healing from a concussion is actually more detrimental. So they need their brains to rest. We need them to heal. And their best healing process is while they're sleeping. So not not only are you doing proper hygiene, hygiene, hydration, diet, stretching, low activity, sleep, helps them to heal better, which is why we talk about less brain stress with screen time. Mm-hmm. And so and then the next question I get is, but aren't you afraid they're not going to wake up? I will tell you right now that 99% of the time, and it's not a, nothing's 100%, right? right? 
But the reality is, is that the severe brain injuries that we see usually appear within the first six to 12 hours of any head injury. Those are the ones that don't wake you up, right? The brain bleed, mm-hmm. the fracture, those we catch because we also, if we don't image you in the ER, we, we observe you if we can, we're concerned that this is a pretty bad head injury without having to image you. So there are very strict and clear guidelines, guidelines on how to manage it. So sleep is very, very, very important. And I, and I love that because, you know, a lot of parents, we, we struggle as parents and as, you know, healthcare, you know, first line healthcare workers, we have to give the child the bad news that they have to stay off devices because their brain does need to relax and sleep. 100%. Yeah. And sleep is important. So I'm glad that we clarified that. So for parents that child maybe suffered a concussion, don't feel the need to do what my mom did and wake them up every two hours. <laughs> that's, that's very, very correct. So again, the big, the big thing is immediately take your child out of the sport if it's done during a sport or even like biking or helmeting or um, biking or uh, what do you call it, skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Immediately take them out. Don't let them go back and reevaluate them. Follow up with a family doctor and if symptoms come back, Make sure that you have good relationship with your doctor or you always have the option of coming to the ER. And it's all that home management. You need to be a strict parent. Your child may be angry at you, but the reality is, is you're preventing them from future symptoms. And I can tell you, I've seen kids with concussions who have prolonged months. I personally suffered too, and I didn't listen the first time. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I was young and I wanted to be competitive still, and I still have headaches. You know, so many years later, and they can be triggered very, very easily. We want to prevent that. And then we want to prevent the second hit, right? If they Mm -hmm. get hit again, injure themselves within the acute period of time, which is within the first two weeks or even a month of that first injury, it can trigger it and the healing is even longer. When we come back, fevers and viruses, when to bring your child to the ER. This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Have a question for Dr. Claudia? Call us at 416-335-1059. Tweet us at 105.9 The Region or email us info at 1059theregion.com. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. We all know that the conversation around fevers has reached an all-new level. A fever is cause for concern due to COVID, but fevers do exist and not always because of COVID. So how does a parent know when to worry about a fever? So if a child has a fever for more than 24 hours, is that a cause for concern? I, Claudia, I love talking about fevers. I think it's one of my favorite things to talk about that I address on my social media all the time and that I address at work all the time. So the way we worry or the way parents worry, and I completely understand why parents worry about fever, especially now during this pandemic, is typically based on the number of days of the fever. So 24 hours, it's still pretty early, but then there's also other criteria. It's age. So we worry about fever in anyone under the age of three months in the sense that even after one fever, you should probably be checking in with your pediatrician, your family doctor, or even, you know, the ER if you don't have access. So um, it's an age thing. So under three months. After that three-month period and they have a fever, it's about number of days of fever or how unwell your child looks. So as you can see, there's lots of different variables. It's not that easy by just saying, unfortunately, just 24 hours. So we say 
I kind of have my criteria I've created, and I think it's across the board. So I usually say three or less days. If your child looks unwell, like and this is, this is excluding the three-month and underage, mm-hmm. three days of fever, three full 24 hours, not days of the week, three full 24 hours and under, and looks unwell. So this means the child who's not eating, not drinking, not they're normal, because when, when you're sick, you don't normally eat and drink the same way, just like adults. But like not peeing in 24-hour period tells us you're possibly dehydrated. Difficulty breathing, not really easy to awake and arouse. Come in. Okay. If your child looks unwell and has a fever, or sorry, looks well. So there's some kids that look great. You give them ibuprofen, Tylenol, they look well in between. They're eating, they're drinking, they're still active in between their fevers. They're, you know, they're still doing their thing. We say minimum of five days. So at five days, someone should be reevaluating and looking at your child because Right now, it's virus season. Mm-hmm. Virus opens up the door to other types of infection, and we're aware of that. So just kind of to, to be kind to families and to also not have families coming in every single day to be rechecked, we have these guidelines that usually help 95% of the population kind of manage and guide fever management at home. And so I, you know, once again, we're going to go back to how my mom handled fever. So should parents really starve a fever and feed a cold? Or is that? I love these questions. Okay. (laughs) So there was, there was this saying and there was this school of thought that, you know, when we were younger, I remember this, it was a few things. One was the minute your child had a fever, dunk them in a cold um, bathtub and, you know, that's going to help. We don't recommend that anymore. Thank God. Cold bathtubs, putting a really warm child in there could actually precipitate them, you know, reacting not the way we've hoped. So you see kids that go limp all of a sudden because their body is kind of in shock or seize. We don't want to do that. Lukewarm water is great, but cold water is not. So that's one. Two, we talk about fevers and fever management. There used to be the school of thought that you treat every single fever that your child has. What that does is that it actually can mask the progression or improvement of that fever where we look at that. We look at the fever curve over days, right? And so we've now developed a school of thought that unless you have high risk, you know, pre, like, medica- like a history, medical history, so febrile seizures, we still sometimes say if you're comfortable, you can treat every single one to prevent, but that still is not a prevention for febrile, febrile seizures. We say treat your child. So look at your child see how they're doing. And sometimes even if they look uncomfortable and unwell during a febrile illness or a viral illness, you can give them something to make them feel better. So the goal is to look at your child and say, I don't think they look good. They're not comfortable. What's the point of letting them be that way and give them something. But there is no hard stop rule that says you should be, you know, 100% treating every fever um, when your child does look well in between. And so does a fever, so first of all, what is a high fever? Like what would be, if, you know, I'm taking my child's temperature, it registers at what in order for me to know that my child's fever is high? So that's, that's a great question. High, let, let me clarify. So we, first of all, every age group has a different way that gives you an accurate fever or accurate, sorry, accurate temperature to determine if there is a fever. So under the age of one, we say always take the temperature rectally. It's the most sensitive and accurate. After the age of one, even up to the age of two, most kids can't keep the thermometer in the mouth, so we use the underarm as the next most accurate. 
And then after that, when they can keep their mummer in their mouth, we usually say the mouth. The ear is very sensitive to the external environment. But if that's your only option, sure, take it. The one we say no, no, no is the forehead. The forehead has probably been the most written about, talked about, that is the most inaccurate tap. And the reason why I stress this with parents is because an accurate temperature to determine if there's a fever changes what we may do. And I'm, I'm not joking when I say this. So we could end up doing things that are unnecessarily unfortunate because we are trying to, we trust the parents that they're taking the temperature accurately and perhaps they're not. And then we end up doing unnecessary tests. So that's what a fever is. We also remind families, and I don't think a lot of families know this, is families get very fixated on the number. The number of the fever, which fever is 38 degrees Celsius and above, or 100.4 Fahrenheit and above. We kind of are trying to stay away from the low-grade fever words because technically it's either a fever or it's not. And we have a group of immunocompromised patients that less than 38 is a fever for them because we know that their immune system can't mount the same kind of response. That's different. I'm speaking kind of on the guides Mm -hmm. of the regular healthy child who's not immunocompromised. So 38 Celsius or 100.4 Fahrenheit. And so we look at that, and parents get very worried about numbers. The number tells us nothing. The number just says that your child has an immune system. They're mounting a fever in response to something. I have seen children come into the emergency department, 38.1 Celsius, looking horrible. Right. And I've seen children with 42 running around the room. So the number itself does not indicate or tell us how unwell your child is. Now, high, high fevers, what do we call it? High, usually anything above 40, 41 is considered high by definition. But again, to remember that that does not mean that I'm going to be able to tell or it doesn't tell you what's going on in that patient's body. So you said something about the immune response, uh, a fever being Mm. an immune response. So can a fever be indicative of a strong immune system? Yes. So fever, when we tell parents about fevers, fevers, you know, just like everything else, there's two ends of the spectrum. Fevers are an indication of a response that the body is building, which is a positive thing. It means your immune system is working. It's recognizing something alien in your body, which means it's not used to. So that could be the first time you're exposed to a virus, Mm -hmm. the first time you're exposed to a, a bacterial infection, like an ear infection. And so you want the body to build an immune response because that fever helps to fight the infection. Then we get into the whole other spectrum of prolonged fevers, which means now your body is in a hyperimmune response for a long period of time. And that can be more indicative of something more concerning underlying. And that's for like a whole other discussion another time. But like when it comes to fevers of like seven to 10 days, that is not an uncommon time period to fight an uh, ear infection, a viral infection. So yes, a fever is more times than not can be a positive thing, but prolonged fevers or fevers that recur on a weird basis, like almost every month for two or three days here, two or three days here. Those are the ones we always recommend follow up with a pediatrician, family doctor who can then recommend a specialist. Right. So I guess the takeaway from today's show is Do not wake a child with a concussion and just remember that fevers aren't always a bad thing. I can't thank you enough for joining me today. If listeners want to learn more about you, how can they do that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously right now it's a really tough time and I've been super busy clinically, but I am still definitely very active and mainly on my Instagram. So dr.cash.official on Instagram, where I post a lot of educational stuff on pediatric wellness and health, but also a lot on like COVID, COVID COVID-19, vaccines, and a lot of just topics. And I'm very open to hearing topics that parents want to hear about. And I host a show um, that's called uh, Physicians in Living Rooms, where I bring in specialists and another one, Reflections from the ER, where monthly I talk about what's going on in the ER, making parents aware of what the ER is like, what we're seeing, and just hoping that that helps to, you know, empower parents in the community to feel better and more comfortable with their children and how to manage them at home before they have to make a trip to the emergency department. And you know what? I encourage everybody, honestly, all the listeners, go to her Instagram profile, check her out, make sure you join in on those shows because they are very informative. I learn a lot and I Hmm. love watching what you're doing on social media. And it's so great as a parent to have you as a resource. So thank you again. If anyone is looking for me, they can find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Macchiella or my website, ClaudiaMacchiella.com. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. Thank you. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you.